It's just like, apparently I'm related to a Nigerian prince. Oh, no way. Yeah. And he's, he's in a tough bind. He's in prison right now. So if yeah. I send him a couple of thousand dollars, he'll give me some of his fortune and maybe also a title to some deed of land or something. Oh, sick. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, um, I know. I, I keep getting these worrying calls from the Chinese consulate mm-hmm. where they're like, hey, you know, you're wanted for arrest. Like, you could be deported tomorrow to China. Um, a place I've never been to, but yeah. I mean, I could be deported there. So I'm just, I'm a little worried. Hello and welcome to Mandatory Media, the show about the media you should have studied, but probably didn't, but maybe you saw it. I don't know, actually, because some of the stuff we talk about is pretty niche, some of it's pretty popular. Um, We've got three hosts with us today. Uh, My name's Seth. I'm a wannabe film critic, a student of the theater, and a general lover of the arts. I'm David. I'm a writer with a little bit of experience on a lot of different things, but mainly I focus on film, pop- and, uh, on film and popular media. Nailed it. <laughs> I'm Brett. I'm a poet and uh, I also nailed it. I'm Brett. I'm a poet and scholar whose poem, The Patient Bride, A Vision in a Dream, was published in Mars Hill. Uh, in today's episode, we are covering Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window, as always, we won't shy away from spoilers, so take care if you haven't seen it, as we will be discussing major plot points and themes. Um, cool. I Okay, so normally when I watch something for the podcast, I sit down and like my parents and my sister will walk by and be like, what are you watching for the podcast? That's kind of, mm, that's kind of weird. But yeah. instead... I'm like, I have to watch some sort of Hitchcock movie, and they're like, which one? And then I'm like, <laughs> the window, and they're like, oh, I love that one. And I'm like, I didn't know you guys had even seen that. Like, <laughs> apparently it was a big thing. So my my mom and my sister joined me, and they really liked it. I think they like, um, they just really are huge fans of Grace Kelly and her outfits and just the rest of it. So I was like, huh. That was a weird surprise because normally I watch like old movies for the podcast and they're just super not interested. Yeah. So. Uh, I mean, Grace Kelly in this movie is a bit of a sleigh. Mm-hmm. Like she, she has incredible fashion sense. Um, she's also like as Lisa Fremont is just kind of she's just kind of playing Grace Kelly because that's who she was as a she became the princess of Monaco. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is something I only discovered yesterday. Uh, Yeah, I just, I knew her as Grace Kelly from Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window. (laughs) And then I realized, oh, wait, no, she married, like, legitimate royalty. Um, So she's just kind of playing herself, but she's an icon for it. So, yeah, I was also, I was introduced to this movie when I was quite young by my grandmother, um, who loves Hitchcock movies um and I don't know she she had like either this one on DVD or it was like on TV or like it was on Netflix I don't know it was something and I was young and she was so excited that it was available um yeah so that's how I got introduced to this movie way back in the day um yeah were either of you guys like a aware of alfred hitchcock before this episode i was aware of his existence yeah 
Um, I don't, to my knowledge, I haven't seen any of his films before. I definitely heard of Psycho. Yeah. I mean, Psycho's, Psycho's the real heavy hitter. Uh, it's got the shower scene. It's got the dead mom. It's iconic. Yeah, I I also have heard of Hitchcock, surprisingly, I know. Um, really? He's just like the quintessential like director that you think about of like what's a film director like Alfred Hitchcock is the yeah. classic. But I I once again have never seen any of his work and it's like it's been on my list. Yeah, someday I should watch Hitchcock, but uh, never got around to it. So well, here congratulations. We yeah, thank you. You've now seen a Hitchcock movie. Yeah. And I will now be super qualified to talk about Hitchcock, and we'll do so at length, because good thing no one else has studied Hitchcock. <laughs> <laughs> He's this little indie film director that no one's ever heard of before. Yeah. Uh, so, Rear Window uh, comes out in 1954. Uh, it's written by John Michael Hayes, directed by Hitchcock. And this movie's, like, right in Alfie Boy's, like, peak of his of his of his career he had been making movies since the early 20s he continued to make movies into the early 70s i'm sorry his last film came out in 1993 wow he shot it in 44 so his last real movie came out in 76 so um he started making movies in the 20s into the 70s but hitchcock in like the 40s 50s and early 60s is really where he's he's making a name for himself. He's really kicking off. Because um, in the same year, he also releases Dial M for Murder. Uh, this is a couple years before he does uh, his incredible back-to-back -back streak of Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, and The Birds. Um, so he, he is doing great right now. He is very successful, very popular, making a lot of movies, but not winning any Oscars. Which is a bit surprising. Um, yeah, and this is kind of one of his most well-remembered um, films. The Academy not recognizing popular directors? What? I, I don't know. know. That's, that's never happened before. It's crazy. I, I'm not sure if he was just never... If he was never nominated and never won. Um... Okay, he was nominated for director five times for Rebecca, Lifeboat, Spellbound, Rear Window, and Psycho. Never won. So the, the concept for this movie is, is pretty simple. Uh, we've got our, our protagonist, professional photographer, L.B. Jeffries. Uh, he has broken his leg on an assignment. Uh, he's stuck in his apartment. He's been stuck there for the last six weeks. He's got one more to go before he can cut his cast off. Uh, it is the middle of summer, and it is very hot. He's got nothing to do because, you know, the Internet's not a thing yet, so he can't go around just surfing Reddit all day. Uh, so he decides to watch his neighbors through his window and studies their habits. Um, and towards the end of his... Uh, his, his time in the cast, he notices that maybe one of his neighbors committed murder. And the film kind of spirals out from there. It's what are the ramifications of thinking that, you know, one of your neighbors maybe killed their wife. 
Yeah. I, I very much enjoyed, I think this is kind of just a broader thing. I'm enjoying it as a, I'm more of a blockbuster style, I think. Like, I think you very often, when you think about films really worth studying, I feel like a lot of them tend to be very heavy, kind of serious things. And I think that's good because cinema can definitely be about serious things and like looking into other people's lives. But I also enjoy this kind of in-between where it's not really a pop, it's got so much more depth than like a traditional popcorn flick might, but it's also not like this very super serious piece of cinema either. Sure. And I think, I mean, this movie did extraordinarily well. On a budget of $1 million, it made $37 million. Yeah. Uh, and in 1954, that is incredible. I think it's also, you know, this is the pre-blockbuster age. Uh, if, if we consider our first blockbuster to be Jaws in 75, um, then this is very much part of a, a pre-blockbuster popular filmmaking. So, you know, our, our films are accessible for a commercial audience. Yes, but there's also the emphasis on, you know, we're not just telling mass market information because you don't need to achieve the same sort of universal appeal. Uh, you have a block, a block, a, a, a box office that's a lot more diverse in terms of what it's offering and when it's offering it hmm. because not every film is trying to cater to every single individual like we would see with a modern blockbuster where you know, you need a Marvel movie to make a billion dollars for it to be uh, a success, whereas this one, you know, it needs not a billion dollars. <laughs> so you have the opportunity to make stuff that is commercial, very commercial, and very accessible. Um, I think Hitchcock's greatest strength is that he is extremely accessible, and he's makes really good stuff, or made really good stuff. He's dead now. Um so yeah, but and that's something we don't always see in blockbuster filmmaking now. And not to say that that's completely gone, because I think things like Oppenheimer. Uh, I know not everyone here loves that movie. I think it gets into this kind of older Hollywood aesthetic of, you know, we're making stuff that we're tr- is trying to be serious but also accessible. But then that movie also made almost a billion dollars. So what am I saying? Make a billion dollars. Write that down. Write that down. Ooh, why didn't I think of that? You know, in theater, we talk about um, our measure of success and what does it mean to be successful. And I think going forward, that's what it's going to be. Make a billion dollars. If it's not a billion dollars, it's a failure. Mm. So what are our you know, first thoughts and impressions about Reader Window? You know, I found it to be an interesting movie. The, just the way that it filmed with the uh, Jeff looking out of his window mm. and other windows while he was injured, he was kind of incapacitated, gave it a kind of slow building up feel. But it also made me as the viewer feel kind of gross and unclean because I felt like he was being a bit voyeuristic, just like peering and leering through the windows of his neighbors and i felt like as the viewer i was also doing that Mm. and so and you know he's a fairly moral person so it wasn't necessarily although although there was some like half-dressed people that he was just watching 
doing exercises and things. So it was a bit uncomfortable in that way. But like the plot, the storytelling, that was interesting. And I wasn't like from beginning to end, I felt like I was engaged with the film, but I never felt like, wow, I'm so into this. I'm so fascinated by everything mm -hmm. that's happening. Yeah, I'm sure we could have a many, many people have talked at length about Hitchcock's voyeurism. And it, it is an, an essential part of his movies. Where and and, and then again, that influence is is felt everywhere. Uh, if you've ever seen a Brian De Palma movie, um, Brian De Palma is just Hitchcock, but in the 80s. So things are seedier and grosser and darker. Um, but yeah, no, that that sense of, of watching other people and doing something that you're not supposed to be doing is very literal here because that need to look, that need to gaze is part of the narrative. But it shows up in all this stuff where people, you know, see the wrong thing or they look the wrong way or they look at the wrong person and suddenly their life is completely altered. Okay. I also think that there's there's a degree to which it's metatextual as well because Hitchcock is not just writing narratives about the about a gaze but he is also himself participating in that because he has a camera and a mm -hmm. camera is a gaze and he's controlling an audience member and what they're looking at so just as much as Jeffries is being a voyeur on other people the camera is being a voyeur on his life. Um, so it's, it's this sort of, I think, it's, it's very meta in a way. Like one of Hitchcock's greatest experiments is uh, this, these, uh, the, the, are you guys aware of the Kuleshov effect? No. Is the, is the one with the, the different perspectives based on? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Kuleshov effect is basically a, it's like a filmmaking technique, a theory um, that two images in context with each other mean more than a single image on its own. Which seems kind of, which can seem pretty obvious, uh, but the way Hitchcock illustrated it uh, is he took this shot of himself, this, this, you know, three second long clip of himself just looking off into the middle distance and he stitched it with two different things. He had that shot and then he cut it with a woman and her baby in a park and now oh look it's a kindly old man looking on this scene of love and then he also edited against a young woman reclining at a beach and now he's a creepy pervert um and so it's it's this idea of who is doing the looking and what are we looking at as kind of a comment on filmmaking itself Yeah, I definitely, I think, um, couldn't see it while Brett was talking, but both Seth and I were kind of smiling a little bit when he talked about the, oh, it's kind of weird, it feels a little voyeuristic, because I think that's, at least being, you know, having watched a lot of film essays on YouTube, um, that's, that's like, it's a classic, Rear Window, I think, is a classic example of, yeah, that, how, how Hitchcock connects the voyeurism to cinema as well, so I was aware of that um, going in. And I think I I really enjoyed all the little stories that took place alongside the 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 big one. Like just seeing, even though we were 
focused on did the neighbor kill his wife we got to see all these little stories happening throughout too which i think is just really good writing that connects everything together and also from a filmmaking standpoint just incredible because there aren't that many different camera angles mm. in this film there's there's it's very sparse uh, except for the one room that um jimmy stewart's character lives in the rest of it is just looking out this window across uh, uh whatever studio's back lot they're filming on and doing everything kind of from this not necessarily one room but like one scene setup which i think is just wonderful filmmaking within restraints which is something i love yeah and i think that that those themes of like voyeurism show up again like vertigo um most prominently but yeah the, the, the limited spacing is always something i forget I forget in a sense because I, I see this movie not so much focused on that apartment because we never actually see very much of it. It's very much just that living room. Um, whereas something like Hitchcock's rope feels a lot more limited just because we don't really get a sense of, and that's another film that's set just in an apartment, but we only ever see the apartment. Whereas I think Rear Window, because it's so limited, it benefits from being able to see the people across the courtyard to develop this world that's a lot larger than just one room in one apartment. Also, I think this is the first movie that I've seen Jimmy Stewart in that's not It's a Wonderful Life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, okay. that's an interesting change. Yeah, so so our, our cast, we have uh, James Jimmy Stewart as L.B. Jeffries. We have Grace Kelly as Lisa Fremont, who's just playing Grace Kelly. Uh, Wendell Corey is our NYPD detective. Thelma Ritter is Stella, who is uh, LB's nurse when he is uh, dealing with his broken leg. And Raymond Burr plays Lars Thorwald, our suspected uh, murderer. Uh, yeah, so I think probably most people would know uh, Jimmy Stewart from It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, he did a lot of other stuff as well. Um, yeah, he, he's been in a whole bunch of movies. He's a great actor. He's got such a distinctive voice. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he was in You Can't Take It With You with Frank Capra. He did a whole bunch of Frank Capra stuff. He did You Can't Take It With You. He did It's a Wonderful Life. He did... Uh, the Philadelphia Story. Uh, he was in a uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, stuff with Hitchcock, including Rope, Rear Window, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Vertigo. Um, so he is a he's a very accomplished individual. Was he's dead now? With most people, what an upbeat thing to think about. Most people are dead. Yeah, I wonder. How many people have been alive before now? Now I'm just thinking about the one Doctor Who episode where you get Missy being like the one key strategic weakness of the human race. The dead outnumber the living. And then she revives the dead. Turns them all to Cybermen. Yeah. <laughs> Grace Kelly is an icon, of mm -hmm. course. Um, the funniest part of this movie is that is that... Lisa, 
is is crazy about LB. She's just she's just she's going insane. And yet the whole time he's just like, I am not gonna marry you. I I she's like, Yeah, I'll move to Africa. I'll take off the I'll take off the, the high heels. We can live in the jungle. He's like, No. I can't. Get it together. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the real fantasy in this movie is full time work as a journalist, but uh... crazy, a photographer, and that's your full time job. Don't be ridiculous. You're also <laughs> a line cook at a restaurant, yeah. and then also a model wants to marry you. So that's just. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, coming back to to gays, which I'm sure we'll probably bring up again. Uh, Hitchcock was actually super formative. Uh, in Laura Mulvey's critical perspective that eventually led to her coining the phrase the male gaze. Oh, interesting. If you want to talk about the male gaze, this is where it starts. Mm. And also vertigo. Vertigo is super important, but it's the male gaze. Yeah, I think there's a very interesting sense of just uneasiness around the whole movie too of i and i think part of it is on purpose but also part of it is like modern sensibilities too the way, the way the camera lingers on certain things and where you're like hmm, hmm. are we really we, we cool with this i don't know uh so yeah it's just a, just very interesting how Per perspectives can shift and how much the camera really contributes to that yeah and i mean we can we can really start getting into laura mulvey's theories on um male gaze and camera work and how cameras how, how the cinema pre-mulvey especially assumes an inherently masculine position forcing the ideas of masculinity to be a normalcy, uh, which is really getting into Aaron Shields from last episode, where mm. her introduction is all about, you know, I began to see myself through the through masculinity being the normalcy instead of it just being one half of the equation. There's a lot of people in the apartment complex. Yeah. Um, there's Miss Lonely Hearts who. Is the saddest part of this movie. Uh, she's very lonely and she pretends to have people over into her house even though no one's there. Um, but then she gets a happy ending. She does yeah. get a happy ending. But we're not there yet in the narrative. Okay, we're just, we're I'm sorry. We're the characters. Good Lord, David. It's the exposition. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever heard of the word exposition before? No, please explain it to me. <laughs> Um, there's there's a newlywed couple kind of uh, in one apartment. Uh, there's a pianist who's trying to write his latest masterpiece. There's a dancer who he nicknames Miss Torso. Um, the middle-aged lady with her dog. Uh, and the Thorwalds who become the center of our drama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if this is the the point to talk about it or not, but uh, yeah. the, the sound design that comes from all the neighbors. 
mm-hmm. and the use of diegetic sound, which is sound that comes naturally in in the world, is just absolutely fantastic. Like I don't think there's any bit of extra added score or any anything like that. <sighs> yeah, I'm trying to. There, there's a little bit of music I know at the in the opening credits at the, at the very end. I don't know if there's anything else. Like most of it comes from the guy playing piano as he's trying to figure out his tune and the sounds of the street around them. Um, that's something I feel like we we have lost in today's age of filmmaking. Of everything is just added in post. You got the you got the massive music. You got the whatever. Just but this is like just wonderful. Really, this is the influence of 19th century melodrama on contemporary action filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, where 19th century melodrama's reliance on music and spectacle and doing things in post, uh, which not really post on a stage because it's all live, but more like special mm-hmm. events, special effects, um, is really just what we do in Hollywood films today. Uh, shout out to Rebecca Martin and her incredible theater history class. Um yeah, so I mean, there's there there's there are moments of music, but it, it's very sparing. They do credit a composer, Franz Waxman, but Waxman's not really doing much here. Wikipedia does say that uh, Franz Wa- Waxman, uh, his con- his contributions were limited to the opening and closing titles and the piano tune. There we go. Thank you. So yeah, it's just the opening and closing titles and the piano tune. That's all the music. Uh, On a fun note about the pianist that we do see, uh, that guy co-created Alvin and the Chipmunks. Oh. Yeah. He's like a legitimate musician that Hitchcock brought in to like play the small part. Uh, And yeah, he's the co-creator of Alvin and the Chipmunks. Who is he? Uh, Where's his name? His name is... Uh, Ross Bagdasarin. Bagdasarin. Okay. He plays the musician. Uh, and he co-created the cartoon band Alvin and the Chipmunks. Yeah, but he's not the guy that wrote the Mona Lisa song that they used in the film, right? Ah, uh, I am unsure about that. Okay. Because now I just... I assume it'd either be him or the composer Waxman, because they're both like legitimate musicians. Because now I just have echoing in my mind the haunting words. (laughs) Are you warm? Are you real, Mona Lisa? We're just a lonely, lovely work of art. Um, Yeah, okay, so the Mona Lisa song was specifically by Nat King Cole. They also play Dean Martin's That's Amore. Okay. Hitchcock is in this movie as well. He appears very, very briefly. He did Stan Lee cameos before Stan Lee cameos were a thing. Uh, And he appears about 30 minutes into the movie. There's one shot of the musician's apartment, and he's got an older friend over, and that older friend is played by Alfred Hitchcock. That's fun. Yeah. If... If, if you ever see another Hitchcock movie, look for him, because he's probably going to be in there. Okay. And he's not very, like, you know, now when they do, like, celebrity cameos in a movie, they kind of make a point of going, 
it's that celebrity. But it's more like it has the energy of the first Spider-Man movie when the Stan Lee cameo is just him grabbing someone and moving them out of the way. Mm. That's kind of what it is. It's like he just walks out of a shop. And that's the extent of his part. Yeah. Or kind of like the Peter Jackson cameos where it's just like, oh, there's a guy biting a carrot. For He's just life. crunching on a carrot. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we venture further on into our twisted narrative. Uh, Lisa comes over, has an argument with LB. Uh, they hear screaming from an apartment across the way, shattering glass. There's a, there's a thunderstorm, and Lars Thorwald begins repeatedly making trips in and out of his apartment, always carrying his suitcase. But it's three in the morning, so why is he doing that? Mm. The next morning, the wife is gone. <gasps> And something is smelling pretty fishy. Uh, so LB gets his detective buddy in, and he agrees to look around. Not much is coming of the investigation. Um, because it sounds like Mrs. Thorwald just was on a train. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple people reported seeing her, I believe. Or seeing Mr. Thorbold with someone. Yeah, there, there's that where he's with someone else and then he comes back late at night and he says to the 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 person at the desk in the apartment building, um, oh yes, I just took my wife to the train. She's gone now. Of course, he didn't actually do that. But. What? Yeah, spoilers to the sent, end of the movie. He sent a postcard. <laughs> Uh, then, then the dog dies, which is so tragic. Um, as we kind of start to get all these little bits, uh, you know, Lisa's coming back a few times. We start to get these kind of weird, suspicious movements that Thorwald's making. Um, as we also kind of get little glimpses of the other people in the building. Um, one of the little subplots that we have is this newlywed couple. I think we see them. There's three references to them in the movie. The first time we see them is they, they come into the apartment. And they're very excited because they just got married. And now it's their, their first home together. Uh, the second time they get referenced, we glance at their apartment, but all the curtains are closed. And LB makes kind of a sly joke there. And then we see them at the very, very end of the movie where they're like bickering with each other. Um, which is this this kind of this, <laughs> this 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 comment that LB makes earlier on, where he's like, "Ah, oh, yeah, you know, in this poor part of the city, women still nag their husbands. Ah, women." Um, so again, it's part of those kind of those those fifties sensibilities that are very obvious here. The classic like boomer humor that you see on Facebook now, like, huh, isn't my wife terrible? And then that's the whole joke. You're like, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, who makes the comment? I think Doyle makes the comment of like, no, no, nowadays, uh, you know, women don't nag anymore. They remind. Uh, but Jeffrey's like, no, oh, no, 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 no. They're, they're still, I wish I had a better Jimmy Stewart impression to do. But no, 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 no. They're 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 nagging here. 
The dog's dead because the dog's been sniffing around in this in this front garden. Yeah. Um, gorgeous garden. Gorgeous garden. Well, man, well, well manufactured garden. Mm-hmm. Well maintained. That's the word I'm looking for. Well yeah, I was going to say manufactured. Yeah. No, not not manufactured. I'm just picturing just like plastic flowers <laughs> in the soil. Well, I mean, hey, if it looks real. good, if it looks good, go for it. Who needs real plants? Uh, yeah, so the, the dogs and sniff around a little bit too much. Now we go, okay, well, maybe there's something in the garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and now we're dead. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I feel like for me, the most moving part of the whole movie is the woman's speech just when she cries out of her yeah. window to the neighborhood which one of you did it which one of you killed my dog you don't know the meaning of the word neighbor neighbors like each other speak to each other care if anybody lives or dies but none of you do you don't mm. talk you don't help you you don't even see but i couldn't imagine any of you being so low that you'd kill a little helpless friendly dog the only thing in this whole neighborhood who liked anybody. Yeah, I think that's one of the that's one of the few moments where there's like actual significant interaction in the neighborhood. Because while we get a great sense of what's going on, thanks to Jimmy Stewart's position physically, where he is and how he can see everyone, all these people live live very disjointed lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the woman's speech is one of the few moments where she breaks these bubbles a little bit. And, you know, people can't just, you know, exist in their own apartment for a moment because this dog is dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just like looking at the script, I don't know if it was like this, if this was true to the original soup, but or, did I say soup? Yes. I don't know if this is true to the original script, but the word see is underlined. You don't even see. So there's this idea that this gaze that you have in this movie, which to me feels a a little bit perverse, it is still this act of generosity, this recognition of the other, this... yeah. Going out of your bubble, as you put it. And then the woman continues sobbing. Did you kill him because he liked you? Just because he liked you? And there's this idea that of this whole neighborhood, this dog was the only thing that, to put it bluntly, was the only thing that treated others humanely. It was the only Mm -hmm. kind of thing that was kind to others. And then it was killed. And then during her whole speech, you get everyone coming out of their apartments and looking out of their windows. But then shortly, well, everyone except Mr. Thorold, but then everyone goes back into their apartments. Yeah, and then those bubbles resume. Yeah, there's there's this sort of urban indifference is the term I want to use right now. Mm-hmm. that Hitchcock's tapping into here, where um, <laughs> the the comment that the detective makes pretty early on is he's like, yeah, okay, if Thorwald really did kill his wife, he's doing a real bad job of it. 
He's not being very secret. Obviously, people can see him. But maybe... If Jeffries wasn't there, if Jeffries was still doing his job, good chance he probably never would have seen this happen. Mm-hmm. And so, not only is the narrative, or is like, is our perpetrator relying on people not seeing him because people aren't going to care enough? But yeah, there's this, there's this idea that everyone's kind of still stuck in their own world, and the biggest crime Jeffrey does, other than just being a, a little creep, and in defense of Hitchcock, uh, and and the film is more of a conceptual thing. Uh, Stella calls him out on it. And I was like, hey, man, I'm pretty sure this is a crime and you can be fined for this. Um, the, the biggest transgression that Jeffries makes is the fact that he's looking outside of his bubble at all of the other bubbles that are, are ultimately on display. Like, the, the windows are open. People are letting people see into their lives. But are they always aware of it, that other people can see them? Um it- I think it's it's very interesting too, like you're saying, tapping into that like suburban um, nature of like yeah, living in a kind of semi-urban environment where everyone is a little bit like interested in what's going on in other people's lives, but also remain very separate. Of like, you know, it's like, ooh, a car pulled up into the cul-de-sac. You know, ooh, who is that? What's going on? Hey, what are the neighbors doing on their lawn? Kind of thing. Yeah, and and I know I've really experienced this in my current neighborhood, which we moved into a couple years ago. Like, in our old place, we kind of knew some people on our streets. Um, I haven't met any of my neighbors. Hmm. And we've lived here for two and a half years. I don't even know if I've, like, seen them out and about. Like, at our old place, people will be out gardening or, you know, in the summertime, or they have people over or something like that. But it's just, it's really quiet around here. Um, so, yeah, definitely that sort of, that feeling of indifference that this movie's all about. It's, people aren't leaving their bubbles. Until they're suddenly breaking into other people's apartments. There you go. And we're very literally breaking into places where we shouldn't be, Lisa. And she goes to jail for it, and she has to get bailed out. But it's all for a good cause, because he killed New people. plan for meeting your neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> Break into their houses. <laughs> I mean, if it works, if it works. You will meet them. Yeah. Just maybe not on the best terms, but... <laughs> uh yeah so the 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 dog's dead um lisa and stella look in the garden they can't find anything um uh lisa decides to hey i'm gonna break into thorwald's apartment uh while jeff and stella the nurse are watching uh miss lonely hearts almost kills herself in this really tragic turn she, again, she's the saddest character in the movie. She doesn't um, because she hears the music from the pianist. Our, our bubbles are starting to break thanks to the nature of the summertime and people leaving their windows open. Um, Thorwald comes back to his apartment. Lisa's in trouble. Uh, LB calls the police. Um, Lisa goes to jail. Uh, 
and you know they, they steal some important evidence and Thorwald is kind of all shaken up um, realizing that someone has you know seen what he's done and I should say that at this point in the film I am not yet convinced that I wasn't convinced that Thorwald had committed any crimes. Yeah, I think that's a particular strength here, is that because we're so limited in our perspective, it's not like Jeffries could go out and like do some sleuthing um, and look at the fingerprints and examine the CCTV footage and feel like a detective trying to solve a case. He's limited to this one place. Um, and even when Lisa goes to the apartment, it's not like the camera's following her. We're still stuck at the rear window. So it's this, it's all this conjecture. Have the, the few things that we've observed make a case credible enough to amount to murder. Because we, we don't see the body. We don't see it happen. It's just these little pieces that we're supposed to string together and a lot of people don't believe lb throughout this movie it's it's a lot of no you're you're obviously wrong sure it's a little weird that he was going out but it's probably not murder um <laughs> one of my <laughs> favorite lines in this movie Le uh, not lisa stella is like my one of my favorite characters here she's incredible um <laughs> they're they're watching Thorwald through his apartment. He's in his bathroom cleaning the shower. Um and Stella's like, yeah, that's probably where he killed her. And then the blood splattered everywhere. And now he's gotta clean it. <laughs> and then there's this beat, and she's like, Well, that's just what we're all thinking, right? I think you brought up an interesting point a little bit earlier too, Seth, about how the further along we go, the more you can kind of get convinced of his guilt, but also the more the bubbles in the neighborhood start to push together throughout the film. Like, you know, the dead dog pulls everyone out of their bubbles and then, you know, Miss Lonely Hearts hears the piano music and slowly things start to get more connected and then Lisa goes over there to the other side and, you know, breaks into the apartment and so we move from exclusively being at the window uh, and everyone staying in their bubbles and looking in to be more active mm. participants of all the stories that are happening throughout. Yeah. This movie is a very, very warm movie. And not like a, like a nice way where it's warm and inviting, but it's very hot. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a good feeling of, of sweat and humidity all over it. Um, <laughs> Like it's a stuffy like, apartment in the middle of summer. Yeah. I think it sort of captures that vibe, for me at least, really well. Um, so it's a little weird to be, you know, watching this movie in February when it's not very warm out. Uh, but it, it, it reminds me of, like, um, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, which is also a movie set in New York, and it's also a very warm movie. Uh, so if you want to... Uh, a very contrasting experience of hot movie set in New York City. Rear window and do the right thing. <laughs> so Lisa gets bailed out of jail uh, and 
so so Jeffries calls Doyle, the the detective, and he's like, "Get over here, because uh, we're about to we're about to face off against Thorwald." Um, uh, Thorwald gets summoned, or 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 Jeffries calls Thorwald. Thorwald figures out who he's talking to, and you know goes to find Elby's uh, apartment. Uh, there's a very tense standoff. There's there's a great shot of like everything gets really really quiet. Uh, LB backs up into a corner, and then you see like the underside of the door, and there's like the two feet slowly creep in. Because um, I mean that's that's it, rear window stands out from a lot of Hitchcock's other most famous famous works. Because it's not particularly suspenseful until the end. Uh, there's this kind of nickname given to Hitchcock where he's you know, the master of suspense. And I don't know if this movie is really a great example of it. Because it remains so detached for most of it. Where our, what's happening is really guesswork. Instead of putting, you know the the protagonist or our main characters in mortal danger um like in psycho it's like there's the creepy old house right there and the guy who's really into dead birds and has a big knife like it's scary um or in north by northwest it's like you're a part of an international espionage plot uh or there's like an, a murderer actively going around the city and dialing for murder but it's it's his his love of like really strong atmospheric lighting and strong camera choices is really only seen in the end when Thorwald actually shows up and uh, LB pulls out his all of his flash bulbs. Um, I always forget that back in the olden days you had one flash and then you had to replace the bulb. I I will say that is probably the. The, the goofiest or the most unserious part of the movie that somehow has the most tension too. Like, <laughs> just close your eyes. You can see when he's about to do the flash. Like <laughs> I'm pretty sure they edited in some of the same takes. Cause I'm like, yeah. those it feels like when you watch LB repeatedly like take out the bulb, I'm like, I'm pretty sure they're just using one take of Jimmy Stewart over and over again. Oh man. Yeah, so the thing of like older films is that there's always this like modern movies are very sleek. And so when you watch a movie that like is is like a student production or not great, it always kind of sticks out because it just feels a little bit clunkier than like the smooth, seamless editing of like a Hollywood blockbuster. But you realize like older movies, most of filmmaking history are are Movies are a lot clunkier than they are today. Classic use of sped up footage just to make yeah. things feel more rushed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's stuff like that. It's like slightly askewed camera angles and you can't go back and fix it. But that's also like part of the charm. Mm -hmm. It's like this, this feeling of artifice. I think that older films have a lot of probably because of its film stock, because of how old it is, because of like sound quality, because of things like, like the big yellow, the, like the animated yellow uh, flash yeah. effect that happens on screen. Um, and it feels a little silly, but also it's kind of the reason why I, I, I like 
these films from an older time is because they have this sort of handmade, made with love sort of quality to them. But yeah, Thorwald shows up. Uh, there's 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 all the flashes being set off. Uh, the cops show up. He gets arrested. Confesses to the murder of his wife. Uh, and that's where kind of our principal action starts to wrap up. Elby is fall falls out the window. He breaks his other leg. Yes, he does. <laughs> and this fun fun twist of irony: he is still stuck with broken legs at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, he ends up right where he began. So really, Rear Window is an absurdist masterpiece uh, about the futility of life's struggles. Because ultimately, we end up in the exact same spot as we began. Mm. It's like it's like waiting for Godot. If it wasn't so weird. <laughs> kind of like Brett. Basically right until the very end when Thorwald actively tried to like uh, strangle Jimmy Stewart's character, I was still like not totally sure <laughs> that he had committed the murder. Yeah. And I was just, maybe Jimmy Stewart's just like going crazy here. Uh, then he started strangling him. I was like, hmm, oh, you know, okay, he yeah. probably committed the murder. Yeah, basically until Thorold shows up at the door as an angry, menacing presence. I was on his side. <laughs> it's interesting, David, that you're using the word antagonist. Because he's not really an antagonist, like in a traditional sense. Like, sure, he's the one he, who did it. He's the center of our investigation. But in terms of like, like, a, like a, a function within the narrative... Because of how far removed the audience remains from the story, he's more just a problem that's happening. The, the, the agency of the characters outside of this apartment is almost non-existent. Like in terms of, you know, impact on the narrative. Because the, the narrative of what's happening in the apartment is being thrust upon these other people who aren't really engaging in it in the same sort of sense that we would have so in 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 this active voyeurism we are removing the agency of these other characters i yeah i think that's true for specific positioning and agency but i i do think thematically that thorwald still oh, kind of 100 that antagonist thing not in just that like oh he did the evil thing kind of way but in the like if you look at this central theme of voyeurism or really um, who who are people behind closed doors and, and what do we actually know about our neighbors? Um, Jimmy uh, Stewart's character is is looking out kind of voyeuristically out of a curiosity and Thorwald is looking out and, and trying to silence his neighbors out of out of uh, out of a fear of, oh, are they going to catch me to cover ah. up his actions? So you kind of have. I wouldn't say they're perfect analogs for each other or perfect foils for each other, but I do think that the whole theme of like who are people behind closed doors gets really well um, tensioned across that literal and figurative gap to the other apartment. Totally. And Thorwald does plenty of his own watching too. Like there, there's a scene where he's just staring out the window and LB has to pull Stella back. Like he might see us watching him watching us <laughs> um so yeah he, he's very much 
he does engage in that act of voyeurism or even just closing the windows, which no one else is doing. It's this fear of being seen. It also leads to this really great scene uh, through the camera lens. And you see Thorwald look directly into the camera and uh, break the fourth wall a little bit with the, yeah. the point of view shot. Really, really good tension building there. Yeah. And it's it's probably, I don't think it's any accident that LB is a photographer. Mm. Because that, you know, connects to, you know, taking the camera of the film is also, or even that he's doing a lot of his spying with like his long telescopic lens. He has his own two eyes, he has his binoculars, and he also has a telescopic lens. And so it, there's also, you know, I think a thematic connection there between using the camera to see his, his neighbors, and then also the camera viewing LB and viewing the neighbors. So the audience is made almost like complacent in that. I'm always, as as someone who likes to to rove through different disciplines and forms of storytelling, one thing I'm always interested in is what do different mediums do well in terms of telling stories? Uh, how what are their limits and where do they excel? Um, and what sort of narratives rely on being told through a certain medium? And I don't know if rear window would really work as well outside of the context of film. Like if it would be adapted to a play or, you know, I don't know if you guys ever read like film novelizations. Um, okay. Yeah. Every once in a while, like I, I had friends who had like the star Wars prequels, but now they're books. And then like Tarantino wrote a novelization of once upon a time in Hollywood. Um, so it's like reverse movie adaptation. I think this movie relies on being told through a camera and being able to to not just hearing about or having people describe their voyeurism, but being a part of that voyeurism is really essential to what the movie's trying to do. Uh, so we get into our epilogue. Uh, it's a few days later. It is still so hot out uh as brett mentioned lb has two casts on now um there's a new dog in the neighborhood the newlyweds are arguing um miss torso has her uh boyfriend come back from the army i'm assuming this is korea um miss lonely hearts is now visiting the pianist um Thorwald's apartment is being redone. Uh, Jeff is, or, or Jeffrey's, he's also called Jeff. He's also called LB. He's called a lot of different things. Jimmy Stewart. Uh, yeah, he's, he's stuck in his apartment still. Lisa's with him. Um, she's reading a book on, you know, the Himalayas. They have a little conversation. He goes to sleep. And of course, uh, she puts the book on Himalayas away and picks up a fashion magazine because women be shopping. Uh, then, yeah, that's that's where our, our film wraps up and we are left in this sweaty New York apartment. Yeah, it, the, the ending is really interesting 
like you say, because it's that very typical kind of almost like it, it reminds me of those of similar like sitcoms and stuff from the the 50s and 60s as well, where it's kind of like, haha, isn't that funny? Oh, that's all folks. And then kind of just wraps up with that. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's it's also, you know, that time where um, there's no really closing credits. So it's just, that's the end of our movie. The end of Paramount Picture. You're done. <laughs> um, yeah, no, there's, there's not, it's, it's pretty, pretty, it's a nice little storybook ending. They solved the murder, now everything's hunky-dory. Mm-hmm. I wonder how many of the people in the surrounding apartments knew that a murder took place. Like, would would that be a thing that's reported on, and then like everyone's like, "Oh, well." I mean, if all those cops are like swarming the na- the next apartment, I'm assuming the New York Post or the New York Times picked up the the story and was like, <laughs> "There was a murder in whatever apartment complex." It's the 1950s, so I have a transatlantic accent now, and it's the radio. <laughs> um, uh, probably. They don't really bring it up because everyone seems to be fine a couple days later. Yeah. You know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we may exactly. die. Thorwald could show up at your apartment. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that Miss Torso's boyfriend is, like, significantly shorter than her. I think it's a fun little bit. Oh, boy, uh, the army sure does make you hungry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, Georgine Darcy got paid a... What, what is it, $350 for this movie? $350 to be in Rear Window. This was her first film role because she was a model previously. Hitchcock said to her after this movie, he says, if you go to Europe and you study how to be an actor, uh, he, he specifically said, if you go and you study Chekhov and you come back to America, I will make you a movie star. And she thought he was joking and never did any of that. <laughs> wow. Anyway, uh, Concluding thoughts about Rear Window. <laughs> favorite moments, favorite aspects, maybe least favorite things, things you're still struggling with, problematic elements. Um, what, what are you taking away? You know, the woman's response to finding her dead dog is probably what moved me the most. Yeah. In this film. It was such a genuine despair that you get there. Just the sadness, this outrage... And the sense that some of the purest love that was in this area was from this dog. Yeah. And I think that in the end, we see more genuine relationships start to develop in the aftermath. And even Jeff's relationship seems to be moving on to a healthier point in the aftermath of the movie. But that seemed to be kind of pivotal. Yeah, I I think I really enjoy just the the concept of it. I really love the kind of creativity within constraints thing that happens both in like th- in in theater, um in film and basically every other creative medium too. Just to see someone who really has a mastery of the craft work so well within very limited constraints in this case. Um you know, one wall on the Paramount lot. And I'm, you know, they spent a bunch yeah. of money to create that. But the fact that the camera basically never leaves that one room or that rear window um, 
it's just yeah really inspiring and i i know it's like the it's like the movie title oh my gosh <laughs> yeah it was a it was a that whole thing was a real indoor set i'm just reading about this now at the paramount studios lot with full drainage because they had to make it rain oh yeah so a pretty extensive drainage system yeah anyway my favorite part of the film is this shot of Raymond Burr's eyes. He plays Thorwald. Like, when he steps into the apartment, it's this, like, ultra close-up on his face, and it's, like, just his eyes that are illuminated by this little band of light coming in from outside, and the door closes behind him, and it holds on this shot for, like, a good 10 seconds. It's great. It is, it is my favorite part of the movie. Uh, thank you for listening to Mandatory Media, everyone. Uh, if you want to send us a message, suggest a topic, or complain about one of my jokes, you can send us an email at mandatorymediapod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at mandatorymediapod. Our music is composed by Christopher Whitford. Our logo is designed by Michelle Tang. And the episode is recorded, edited, and mixed by David. If you want to hear more from me, you can visit workingthroughit.substack.com. If you would like to see any more of my work, you can visit linktree slash Brett V. That is spelled L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E slash B-R-E-T-V. And if you want to read more of my stuff, you can visit my blog, sethinthefilmscene.blogspot.com. that more movies nowadays had big studio backlot sets like i don't love the burton batman movies but that gotham city set rips you need to do more films with backlots like these days you see articles all the time that actors are like i had no idea what we were shooting i was just in a blue screen the entire time just spend the money and build a giant city like come on come on guys come on they made that movie for one million dollars is worth $11 million today, $11.5 million today. And then there's also a huge conversation to be had about why movies are exponentially more expensive now than they were, uh, and why do they look worse? Like, I rewatch Raiders of the Lost Ark pretty frequently, and that movie looks incredible. I mean, some of like, the, the effects towards the end are a little clunky, but like because it's all these practical effects, the action scenes look incredible. But then you watch Dial of Destiny, which had a budget, I think, with inflation, four times as big, and it looks horrible. Anyway, anyway, let's wrap this episode up. Ah. <laughs>